A 21-year-old female presents with new symptoms of decreased vision. Approximately eight hours prior, they were attempting to conduct the cinnamon challenge, where they consumed a tablespoonful of powdered spice. They initially believed it to be cinnamon, but didn't read the label, and later confirmed it was not. They immediately experienced symptoms of tinnitus, or ringing in the ears, as well as dizziness, headache, and flushed skin. They laid down for a few hours, but the symptoms did not dissipate, and at the onset of worsening vision, decided to seek healthcare evaluation. What spice laying around in your pantry could cause your ears to ring and your vision to go dark? Can it do more? If you want answers, keep listening. This is The Poison Lab. listening to The Poison Lab, show about poisoning from people who treat poisoning. I'm your host, clinical toxicologist and emergency medicine pharmacist, Ryan. And after a brief hiatus last episode, Toxo is back in the lab today, and we're thrilled to welcome them back. Thank you, Ryan. I knew you wouldn't last long without me. Well, I think we did okay, but I guess that's one way to look at it. Now, what were you doing while you were gone, Toxo? I was on a medical mission for doctors with very heavy steel borders. Wow, I had no idea there was such a need for steel-reinforced medical care, but we thank you for your service, Toxo. All right, well, let's dive right into the case. So, we had a young person who ate a tablespoon of a spice. They thought it was cinnamon, but they immediately began feeling dizzy, nauseous, and flushed. They had ringing in their ears and later progressed to vision loss. This was a case I was consulted on And I was taken aback when I heard about it. See, I had been teaching about this rare condition for the past few years when I would teach about antiarrhythmics to the physician assistant school. But I never thought I would see a case of it in my lifetime. But it was so common from the 1700s to the 1960s. Don't you humans remember that far? Well, we don't all have a combined universal consciousness like you, Toxo. Rarely do we see this these days. Before we give it away... Let's hear the differentials of our listeners. Activating email reading protocols. Transmissions from the Poison Verse. Our first guess here comes from a repeat guesser, listener Karina Runenberg, who guesses, I think it sounds like nutmeg. And she's not the only one. We have one, two, three, four, five, six guesses for nutmeg. Let's hear why some others also think it's nutmeg. Here is one from listener Nicole Jenkins who says, This sounds like nutmeg, which I believe to be more psychotropic than ototoxic, but... Dot 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 shrug emoji. Wow. Thumbs up emoji to you, Nicole, because that was a great point. I think the fact that it's a spice is drawing people to nutmeg, but I don't really know of any case reports of oto or ocular toxicity from nutmeg. As for its psychotropic effect, let's take this email from Graham Coates Smith. It was nutmeg. That stuff can seriously mess you up even in small quantities. Love the show. Keep up the good work. Sincerely, Graham. Thanks, Graham. I sincerely hope that you haven't been messed up by small quantities of nutmeg. Thanks for listening. How about another one from Reddit user Dunkelstoos666. Flushed skin, vision problems, probably delirious with mydriasis and a high temp. Anticholinergic toxidrome. I would guess it's nutmeg or meristocin. Yet another nutmeg guess. And interesting that they say it's an anticholinergic toxicity. Anticholy what? Ryan, I do not have the same receptors as humans. I have told you you need to explain these concepts to me. Anticholinergic stands for anticholine. Choline like acetylcholine and anti like blocking acetylcholine, the neurotransmitter in our body we use to talk to our brain and other organs. There are many drugs that block acetylcholine that we call anticholinergics. The most common that people would know is going to be diphenhydramine or Benadryl. The same one that teenagers on TikTok have been gulping down to try to impress their friends, but instead wind up with some pretty nasty toxicities. Other examples are over-the-counter antihistamines, numerous psychiatric medicines, and many plants like deadly nightshade, jimson weed, or as this user is suggesting, possibly a compound in nutmeg. 
When you block acetylcholine, you can run into some problems. Remember, it's a neurotransmitter, neural like your brain. So your brain uses it to transmit signals to your organs and tell them to do things. Acetylcholine is primarily involved in governing our parasympathetic nervous system, also called the rest and digest nervous system. So when we release acetylcholine onto organs, you generally see the effects that you would see while you're resting and digesting. It slows down our heart rate so we can rest and relax. It increases secretions of saliva so we can start to digest food that we're about to eat. It mobilizes your gastric system, causing you to need to go to the bathroom, and pushing food through the system so that the different parts of your gastric tract can absorb the nutrients you just ate. And it constricts our pupils so less light gets in and we can get to sleep. Now, it's not only in our parasympathetic rest and digest system, it also gets borrowed just a little bit by our sympathetic nervous system. Sympathetic, like I have sympathy for you because you're being chased by a bear. This is our fight or flight nervous system. To imagine its effects, just imagine being chased by a bear. Your heart rate is elevated so you can run faster. Your pupils are dilated so you can see incoming threats. You begin to sweat so you don't overheat while you're running. This system normally gets you amped up with neurotransmitters called catecholamines. It's kind of a fancy word for adrenaline. Epinephrine, norepinephrine, dopamine, all that stuff but it borrows acetylcholine to stimulate the sweating response. So when you overdose on a drug that blocks acetylcholine, a few things happen. You block the rest and digest system. You can't slow down your heart rate so it's going fast as a fiddle. You can't make any saliva, your mouth gets dry as a bone. You can't pee your poop so you're full as a kettle. You can't constrict your pupils so you go blind as a bat. And you can't sweat, which means you have no way of cooling down. So you get hot as a hair. And when your body gets really hot, it needs to find another way to get rid of all that heat. So your blood vessels dilate, radiating heat off of you as the blood gets closer to the skin. And this makes you look flushed, or as we call it, red as a beet. This is why there's a classic poem for describing anticholinergic toxicity. Fast as a fiddle, dry as a bone, full as a kettle, blind as a bat, hot as a hare, red as a beet, and mad as a hatter. Now, I know we didn't mention mad as a hatter yet, but Acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter in your brain, so when you block it, you go a little bit mad, or agitated, as we like to call it. Not angry agitated, but pleasantly confused. Patients are commonly described as picking at things in the air, and they have what are called Lilliputian hallucinations. That's in reference to Gulliver's Travels. The island of Lilliput was where the tiny people lived that Gulliver found, the ones that roped him up. Well, people tend to hallucinate very small objects or have size distortion. It's a relatively common phenomenon. Anyways, we're getting off track. These are the types of symptoms you'd see in anyone with an anticholinergic overdose. Whether it be a misguided teenager trying to do a Benadryl TikTok challenge, or perhaps an anticholinergic compound that's found in nutmeg. Our patient had decreased vision and flushness. Dunkel Stuss is saying this is probably from an anticholinergic toxidrome from dilated pupils, which is making the vision blurred from inability to focus light, and flushness from inability to sweat, causing blood vessels to dilate closer to the surface of the skin. They are also claiming they probably have a hot temperature and are delusional, although that's not really stated in this case. But those were very astute observations, Dunkle Stu's way to put together the pieces. Now, let me just break your whole world. I know we just talked about anticholinergic toxicity, and that has been reported in nutmeg ingestions, but we'd actually expect it to have sympathomimetic toxicity. Sympathomimetic, like mimicking the sympathetic nervous system. Remember the whole running from a bear system? It's governed by adrenaline, epinephrine, norepinephrine, dopamine. So stimulant drugs like methamphetamine, that's crystal meth, or MDMA, which is molly or ecstasy, can look very much like norepinephrine or epinephrine to your body and cause you to experience the same effects as those neurotransmitters. They induce, along with dopamine and some serotonin, the fight-or-flight response. Just imagine your average person on crystal meth. Hot, tacky, sweaty, crazy, throwing cars, fighting cops. They definitely look like they're running from a bear. The bear in their mind. So, talks about what is in nutmeg that would be closely related to methamphetamine. Nutmeg contains meristicin, an amphetamine precursor that gets converted in the body to a compound very similar to the street drugs molly, MDMA, or ecstasy. That's right. 
Nutmeg contains meristocin, an amphetamine precursor which gets metabolized into the body into methoxymethylenedeoxyamphetamine, MMDA. Structurally, it looks very similar to the drug mescaline, which is peyote, and MDMA, which is ecstasy. Like we just said, these are all stimulant drugs. For the chemistry nerds, they're all in a class of drugs called phenylethylamines. I know we said this once, I'm repeating it because we're going over a lot. Phenylethylamines look very similar to our neurotransmitters epinephrine, norepinephrine, and dopamine, which we call catecholamine neurotransmitters. So we would expect somebody who took meristocin and had it metabolized to methoxymethylenedeoxyamphetamine to experience the fight or flight response. Fast heart rate, dilated pupils, agitation, hyperthermia, and sweating your pants off. Kind of sounds like our anticholinergic toxicity, doesn't it? And they do overlap a lot. One of them is activating your fight or flight, and the other one is just preventing you from activating your rest and digest. All this overlap can make it confusing when you have a patient who shows up with a high temperature, wide pupils, tachycardia, and agitation, as they're both shared by activating your fight or flight system or by blocking your rest and digest system. Did they take crystal meth, or was this a Benadryl challenge? Fortunately, we can use certain clues to help us figure out what the exposure might be. If they're hot, tacky, agitated, and sweaty, that's probably a sympathetic toxidrome. If they're hot, tacky, and dry as a bone, with no bowel sounds, and they're retaining all the urine, that's probably someone who took a bottle of Benadryl. But anyways, that's all besides the point. It's possible that nutmeg actually has stimulant and anticholinergic compounds inside of it, which is why we see anticholinergics reported in the literature although we expect more of a stimulant toxidrome based on the known chemicals that are in it. It's a pretty fascinating compound, and there's a good mix of symptoms that are reported in patients presenting with overdose. Regardless of which nervous system predominates in overdose, you rarely hear about people trying to take nutmeg twice. It's generally regarded as an extremely uncomfortable experience, and any dose you would take to experience psychiatric effects is more than enough to experience systemic toxicity. This show is not about nutmeg. If you want to know more, check out a YouTuber called Chubby Emu. He's a toxicologist, and he's actually made a great episode about a case report of nutmeg overdose. And if I piqued your interest about the drugs of abuse and their relationship to our different neurotransmitters, you can check out one of my YouTube videos called What Has Johnny Been Smoking? It's actually a grand rounds I did in 2018, and it explains the biologic effects of psychoactive substances like LSD or methamphetamine based off of their neurotransmitter structural homology. Feel free to check it out. I think this explains why my nephew has a $400 charge at Penzi Spices. Wow, I never knew you had a biologic relative, Toxo, and I'm really struggling to wrap my mind on how that's actually possible. But either way, you should probably talk with your nephew. And nutmeg is not the right answer to any of these cases. So who's going to give me an explanation for the ototoxicity that's present in this case? Wow, Ryan, you are really stumping people with this one. Here's a guess from yet another repeat listener, Michael Wright, who keys in on the fact that tinnitus was one of the first symptoms our patient experienced. They write, tinnitus sounds like aspirin or salicylate poisoning. I'm sure many spices contain salicylates, but without researching, I would guess turmeric, since so many people use it as an anti-inflammatory. Thank you, Michael Wright, BS, pharmacy student at Concordia University. Thanks for writing in again, Mike. Now, this is a great guess for a variety of reasons, although still wrong. When I think ototoxicity, the first thing that comes to my mind is salicylism, or excessive aspirin poisoning. And there are many over-the-counter products which contain large amounts of aspirin. But when I think of that, it's more or less essential oils, like oil of wintergreen, which contains dangerously high levels of methyl salicylate, so much so that just a few drops could kill a child. As far as spices that might contain salicylate, well, spices are ground-up plants, generally, and salicylate was originally discovered in willow bark. That's what they use to treat fever. So it's possible that this was ground willow bark, but it doesn't necessarily explain the ocular toxicity. And I don't think people use ground willow bark as a spice, but I could be wrong. As far as the turmeric goes, I understand the link you're making between anti-inflammatories and possibly containing aspirin, because salicylate is an anti-inflammatory. But turmeric contains a compound called 
diphenyl methane, which is supposedly responsible for its pharmacologic effects. No salicylate that I know of. Did anyone guess it right? Well, hold on there. There were a few guesses. Here's one from ER physician Brad, who says, Hi, Ryan. This is Brad. Just listened to your most recent podcast. Fascinating stuff. Hope I don't OD on loperamide next time I have GI distress. <laughs> I hope so too, Brad. He goes on to say, Listen for the topics in the next case. And I think the first one is quinine powder. Quinine? I thought that was the stuff that is in tonic water. Oh, well, you'd be right, Toxo. And so was Dr. Brad. Well, at least in part. Toxo, would you like to reveal the powdered spice that our YouTuber tried to take a spoonful of? Powdered bark of the cinchona tree. A tree that has been used medicinally for hundreds of years that contains many alkaloids, most notably the antiarrhythmic quinidine and the antimalarial quinine. That's right. Quinine is part of this toxicity. The same quinine that's a precursor for hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, the hotly contested COVID therapeutics that many have heard about today. But quinine is only part of the equation. There's also quinidine and other alkaloids found in the bark of the cinchona tree, a powdered bark that we've been using medicinally for so long, its bitter taste spurred the introduction of a brand new cocktail, the gin and tonic. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And while we've been using it to treat everything from life-threatening parasitic infections to restless legs or fever, you can also buy it powdered right online. People use it to make their own tonic water or even misguidedly take it to try to treat various viral illnesses like coronavirus. In fact, you probably heard about the fatal case in March in 2020 of a man who took a spoonful of a fish tank cleaner that was a quinine derivative known as chloroquine sulfate and rapidly passed away from it. Now, overdose from these substances can cause severe toxicity. But Ryan, the patient was not taking chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine. That's right, but they did get a large overdose of similar compounds. They're all in a class of drugs called quinolines. Hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine are aminoquinolines, which are derived from the cinchona bark alkaloids quinidine and quinine. Hey folks, Ryan here. Quick update about a mini-episode being released alongside this episode. While quinine and quinidine are the focus of this show, I know many people are concerned about the toxicity of their derivatives, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. Given that many misinformed people, given some false promises about hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, are scarfing down who knows how much in a misguided attempt to treat coronavirus. The mini-episode will cover treatments, the evidence and rationale behind each therapy, and clinical considerations and how to monitor the drugs that we're actually using. So check it out at thepoisonlab.com now or after this episode. I'll mention it one more time at the end of the show. Okay. Let's get back to the show. So when this patient got a large overdose of quinolines in their cinchona powder, they began experiencing the classical effects of synchronism, the name coined to describe the syndrome of toxicities that patients would routinely experience when taking cinchona for medical purposes. Feeling dizzy and lightheaded, flushed skin, tinnitus, and sometimes ocular toxicity or even blindness. Brian, are you jumping right into the history before we pick this week's winner? Oh, you're right, Tox. I'm getting ahead of myself. You know, it's kind of tough to pick this week. We had so many good guesses, and we've actually had three or four repeat guessers. While we value loyalty here, we value clearly explained answers even more. And for that, I think we're going to have to go with Michael Wright, who was totally wrong. But he had a good rationale for why he chose the agent that he did, and we liked his thought process. So, congrats, Mike. Keep your eyes peeled for one of our highly coveted Poison Lab stickers coming to a place near you. As for the toxin, well, its history is deeply intertwined. It's been responsible for saving millions of lives and causing serious side effects and many more. Its therapeutic value was hotly debated for many years and still is to this day, if you consider hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. And it's led to massive cultural innovations like the gin and tonic. But maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. Really? It all starts with a parasite and a tree. Toxo, can you hit the history segment? Poisons in history. The parasite in question? Well, actually, there's quite a few, all within the genus Plasmodium. Plasmodium falciparum, 
Plasmodium vivax, Plasmodium ovale, or Plasmodium malariae. All parasites responsible for causing the disease malaria. Malaria. Mal like bad and air like air. It originally got its name as a way to describe the fevers that people experienced after they were exposed to the bad air near marshes and swamps. But it wasn't the air that was causing this disease for them, but the mosquitoes that enjoyed the moist environment near the marshes and swamps. You see, mosquitoes are one of the primary vectors of malaria. The plasmodium parasite lives in the mosquito, and when it drinks your blood, the parasite enters your body. It spreads out into different organs, but eventually infects your red blood cells, which then makes you a carrier. Then, when another mosquito comes to drink your blood, it gets malaria and can go spread it to others. According to the World Health Organization, there was about 435,000 deaths from malaria in 2017. This is why mosquitoes commonly win the award of most deadly animal. And unfortunately, the most vulnerable population are children under 5 years old. Now, if you're listening in the U.S., this might be a bit of a surprise to you. Malaria was eradicated in the United States between 1947 and 1951, owing in large part to the widespread use of the powerful insecticidal agents such as DDT. So despite pesticides like DDT having a pretty toxic reputation, some have said they're one of the most life-saving interventions that humans have come up with. Either way, while we may not have the threat here in the U.S., it is still rampant worldwide. And malaria has been infecting humans for as long as we can remember. For so long, in fact, that it was an evolutionary pressure for the development of some conditions. Sickle cell anemia is a condition where your hemoglobin takes on a different shape, causing your red blood cells to crumple and look kind of like half moons or sickles. These irregularly shaped cells can get stuck in small blood vessels, which slow or block blood flow and oxygen to certain parts of the body. It occurs when you have two copies of a gene that change the shape of your hemoglobin. If we look at it purely from an evolutionary perspective, having genetic mutations that cause decreased oxygen delivery, as well as a whole other slew of effects, wouldn't normally be considered a survival advantage. So we wouldn't expect this gene to become very prevalent. However, some 4.4 million people are afflicted with sickle cell anemia, and another 43 million are carriers. So why does that happen? Well, if you have only one copy of the gene, you're just a sickle cell carrier. Your red blood cells still function normally, but there are some slight alterations to the cellular machinery of them. Now remember, malaria needs to infect our red blood cells. Well, because of changes that these sickle cell carriers have in their cellular machinery, they're actually less likely to let malaria into their blood cells to infect them. So having the sickle cell carrier trait imparts a survival advantage in areas of the world where infants and children die of malaria. This is why 80% of sickle cell anemia can be found in patients with ancestors from sub-Saharan Africa or places where malaria is endemic. Evolutionary pressure from malarial infection causing premature infant mortality selects for a larger population of sickle cell gene carriers who are less likely to get infected. And with a larger population of carriers, we're more likely to pass on two copies of the gene and get full sickle cell anemia expression. Brian, is this episode about poison or malaria? You are getting off topic. Isn't it all one topic if everything in the universe is connected, Toxa? You sound like you've been eating nutmeg. Okay, the point is, malaria has been around for a long time, infecting humans and causing disease. While we only recently determined the pathogen to be plasmodium, we have known of the clinical symptoms of malaria infection since early human history, and fever is one of the hallmark signs. And humans have been aggressively hunting for treatments to malarial fever for as long as malaria has been hunting us. And, well, that's where the tree comes into play. The tree, as we talked about before, is the Cinchona tree. It got its name from the Countess of Cincon, which is a small colony in Madrid, Spain. She was visiting Peru in 1630 when she came down with a case of malarial fevers. Now, instead of using traditional methods of that time for treating fever, which included things like limb amputation, purging, bloodletting, being thrown into a bush to leave the fever there, they instead utilized a medicinal bark that the natives of Peru had been using for many years as an antipyretic. 
and lo and behold, the Countess of Sincone was cured of her fever. Thus, the Sincona tree got its name, and the Countess of Sincone gathered up the bark and distributed it to others afflicted with malaria through herself and through her Jesuit preachers. Thus, it also has the name Jesuit bark. It was brought back to Spain and gained widespread use for a variety of conditions. Its use for malaria was frequently recommended, though hotly contended, not unlike today, where the Sincona bark derivative hydroxychloroquine is under much debate in terms of its utility in coronavirus. As you can imagine, without strict regulation around the concentration of Sincona alkaloids such as quinine, quinidine, and quinamine, users of this miracle bark often received variable dosing, which would lead to a variable effect on actually treating malaria. Combine that with frequent contamination and malicious vendors selling false powders for profit led to much debate over the actual effectiveness of this. Nevertheless, its use was still widespread a hundred years after the Countess of Sincone became ill. In 1768, Sincona bark was being used as a prophylactic agent to prevent malaria in British soldiers. The British naval surgeon James Lind recommended that as long as a ship lay at anchor in a tropical port, every man receive a daily ration of Sincona powder. Now, the quinine in Sincona powder makes it very bitter, and the soldiers didn't exactly want to choke down dry bitter powder, so they would mix it with soda. Quinine mixed with soda is known as tonic water, and they would add in their ration of gin, as well as some lemon juice and sugar, and thus, out of concern to keep soldiers healthy when they were in tropical ports, the gin and tonic was born to prevent malaria. Now, before you get any bright ideas, you can't kickstart your day with the gin and tonic and tell people you're treating malaria. Currently, in the U.S., the FDA limits tonic water to 83 milligrams of quinine per liter. And generally, you needed to have about 500 milligrams of quinine to actually treat malaria. So you'd need about five liters of GNT before you were even getting therapeutic. I think you'd run into some other problems before that. Tonic water seems great for soldiers in malaria endemic countries, and guys named Todd on Sunday Funday. So why isn't it still being used today, since malaria is still so prevalent? Good question. And actually, it's the scarcity of other anti-malarial agents that drove us to move away from Sincona powder in the first place. See, it was the only anti-malarial available for three to four hundred years. But it turns out that Sincona trees are pretty hard to grow. So there are limited areas where it can be produced. And during World War II, the Dutch-controlled East Indies was the only area capable of producing this anti-malarial bark. So when that area was captured by Japan in World War II, nearly the entire world lost access to their only anti-malarial treatment. And remember, malaria still kills hundreds of thousands a year, even today. This was a vital therapy for many nations. So given that the U.S.'s enemies in World War II controlled the only access to anti-malarials and there was absolutely no other options, it provided the incentive for the U.S. to actually research and develop other anti-malarial compounds. It was given the level of priority second only to the Manhattan Project, which developed the atomic bomb. So thanks to the pressure from the scarcity of other options, we eventually developed other agents like hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. And we should be thankful. It turns out Sincona bark is actually a pretty terrible way to treat malaria. All throughout its therapeutic use, there was constant debate over whether it was helping or not. Apparently, there's some theories that it can actually increase malarial infectivity, and it doesn't even kill malaria, it just suppresses it to keep soldiers healthy, yada yada yada. So, very questionable efficacy. But I guess if it doesn't have any side effects, it's pretty low risk, right? Oh, except... There's a ton of side effects, and soldiers routinely experience them. Besides some nastier ones that we don't have time to get into called blackwater fever, soldiers taking this to prevent infection routinely experience dizziness, nausea, tinnitus, headaches, vertigo, flushness, and sometimes decreased vision. The classical symptoms of synchronism. If I was a soldier, I'm not so sure that I would want to be taking this. Well, Ryan, we developed new antimalarials after World War II, so no one gets synchronism anymore, right? Well, you'd think, and yes, having less people choose Sincona bark is definitely going to reduce the likelihood of seeing it, but we figured out that quinidine, one of the active components in Sincona bark, is an antiarrhythmic. 
So we actually isolated that and turned it into a drug. And in the 18 and 1900s, everybody was getting quinidine to treat palpitations. And guess what? If you were on quinidine, you could also develop synchronism. So we were still seeing bursts of this up until about 1980. Okay, and I don't want to get too nerdy here, but there was basically a trial called the CAST trial, which demonstrated that when we use antiarrhythmics to try to suppress arrhythmias, it actually kills more people than it helps. So a lot of antiarrhythmics began falling out of favor, but people do still take quinidine to this day for certain arrhythmias. And thus, synchronism persists. Not to mention, quinine, the other part of synchronoparter, is still available as an antimalarial for refractory malaria. And the quinoline derivatives, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, can also produce similar symptoms when excessive doses are taken. So we can see it in that population too. And probably the most common population you'll see it in are people who buy synchona powder to make their own tonic water. And they use it to treat everything from restless legs to leg cramps to trying to prevent coronavirus. Or potentially eating spoonfuls of it in an attempt to do a cinnamon challenge. So while you might think that this is something you'd only read about in a book, like I did, it's quite likely that you could encounter this. And even more likely, you'll identify it if you know what to look for and who's at risk. So it's probably a good idea to understand why it occurs and how we manage it. I think it's time we dive into our toxic mechanisms and clinical effects section. Toxo, hit the segment. Brian, you said the clinical effects two times already. Okay, I thought you were going to play the segment, but I, I guess can you just tell us what the effects are then? It's the same effects the soldiers were experiencing. Tinnitus, vertigo headache, nausea, and vomiting. Don't forget about possible vision loss. But yes, those are the classical signs. And that's what you might see in somebody who just did the cinnamon challenge with cinchona bark right in front of you. But there's a few other things we could see, especially if they show up to the emergency department and we can do some more invasive diagnostics like checking labs or doing EKGs. So people with synchronism might demonstrate hypoglycemia or low blood sugar and hypokalemia or low potassium. And most concerning of all, well, remember quinidine is an antiarrhythmic, and here's a well-kept secret about antiarrhythmics. They actually cause many arrhythmias, especially in overdose. So we can see arrhythmogenic effects, specifically wide QRS tachycardias, and, well, we can see torsades as well. But Knowing the clinical effects means that you know facts. It doesn't mean you understand what's going on. So let's try to build a mechanistic framework for us to understand the toxicities that Sincona bark imparts. Now, for those of you who don't have a scientific background, I know this is where I lose you. If you don't want to listen to the really cool science and physiology behind the toxicity of these drugs, jump ahead and meet me just before minute 49. And if you're not going to skip ahead and you still have no idea what we're talking about, I've got a little treat for you. Toxo, drop some smooth, smooth lo-fi jams. Let's talk about toxicity. The very first thing we worry about would be arrhythmic effects of these drugs. Now, quinidine, which is found in cinchona bark, is a class 1A antiarrhythmic. The Von Williams classifications of antiarrhythmics, class 1 through 4, kind of outdated and not very helpful. But if you remember, class 1 is sodium channel blockers. So we block sodium entry into the cell. If we were to plot the sodium current, meaning the rate at which sodium crosses into the cell, against time, it will take longer. This decreases the angle of our phase zero depolarization, which is normally 90 degrees from the x-axis. And now instead it's say 70 degrees. So instead of hitting our peak current at say zero seconds, it's gonna take us, I don't know, two seconds. That's a made up value, but hopefully I'm painting a good mental picture in your head. And this is going to lead to a prolongation of our QRS on an EKG because the QRS represents ventricular depolarization, which is now taking longer due to sodium channel blockade. Now, interesting, all class 1As, including quinidine, also possess potassium channel blocking effects. And remember, potassium efflux from the cell is responsible for repolarization. Slowed repolarization leads to a more positive cell for longer, leading it to potentially early after depolarizations, which can trigger arrhythmias. And yada, yada, yada. You probably heard it in the low paramide episode. So with a massive overdose of cinchona and its alkaloids, we would expect to see delayed ventricular repolarization. 
as measured by the interval from the Q, which is the beginning of depolarization, to the T, which is the end of repolarization, or the QT interval. If you need a brush up on action potentials and ventricular repolarization and depolarization, you can check out the mini episodes that we released alongside episode 4, The Rise of Lethal Loperamide. We're not going to rehash it again. Now, exactly how many people are going to develop arrhythmogenic effects from synchronism would be very hard to predict. We don't know how much of each alkaloid is in the specific tree that that bark was harvested from. We can make some extrapolations, such as this case series of people who were taking quinine for treatment of malaria in 1999. They had 60 patients being treated with quinine for malaria. A quarter of them developed our classical symptoms of synchronism. 10 of the 60 patients had cardiac effects. The cardiotoxicity was bad enough to actually kill four of the patients from cardiac arrhythmias. Now, some of these people were getting IV versions, and all of them were getting purified extracts of quinine. So you can't exactly relate it one-to-one with people gulping down spoonfuls of powdered bark. But definitely scary, especially when you consider the fact that they were only receiving quinine. And in cinchona bark, there's multiple cardioactive alkaloids, like quinidine, a known antiarrhythmic. In fact, patients being treated with quinidine in the 1800s used to so frequently just collapse for no apparent reason, they coined the phrase quinidine syncope, which nowadays we recognize was likely isolated episodes of VTAC or torsades. So given that those with just quinine are developing relatively high levels of arrhythmias, it definitely makes me nervous if there's somebody with a large exposure to synchona, which is a combination of both quinine and quinidine. Now, if life-threatening arrhythmias weren't enough, Quinidine has also been shown to have some negative inotropic effects on the heart. Not that pronounced, and much less than some of its cousins in the class 1A family like disopyramide, but in overdose this could become pronounced. That can lead to things like cardiogenic shock. And it also has some alpha blocking effects, hence the dizziness that occurs with synchronism. So you're likely to see hypotension possibly from a vasodilatory or cardiogenic shock in severe overdose. And it should be no surprise that the quinine derivatives, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, can cause many of these similar symptoms, such as cardiac effects or blindness. So despite politicians touting its safety and efficacy, these can be very dangerous drugs. Wait, people with zero scientific training, who shouldn't be assessing efficacy, let alone safety, are making recommendations on whether we should be using hydroxychloroquine? Well, I mean, they're just providing their opinion to to millions of influential people. Despite the medical community never asking them for their opinion? Well, they're just acting like a mouthpiece. Despite not understanding implicit bias in study designs and how it impacts outcomes that are reported, or even the basic difference between wildly biased anecdotal experience and true objective scientific observation. Well, technically, yeah. How do they come to their conclusions? Uh, well, usually they say they asked a respected healthcare member. Oh, so they talk to an actual expert? Why don't they just let the actual expert report their conclusions, instead of sharing misinterpreted data and anecdotal biased stories posted by their third smartest Facebook friend, who claims to have figured out the solution to a massively complex problem just four posts, after they were telling everyone the world was in chaos because Mercury was in retrograde. I mean this is actually insane, I don't know how things can be so- We are experiencing an interruption in broadcasting and we'll be right back. Now. Ocular and ototoxicity. This is what we've been harping on the whole time, two of the more specific classical symptoms of synchronism. The two symptoms that really cued us in in our patient who had ringing of the ears and then developed decreased visual acuity. Unfortunately, we don't really know why these occur, but let me hit you with some jargon and see if you can follow along. Some hypotheses suggest that there is decreased prostaglandin production leading to vasoconstriction at the organ of corti. Now the organ of corti sounds weird, but really it's just a giant superactive volcano that will be activated by Cthulhu when he rises from the grave. Just kidding, making sure you're listening. It's a weird organ that was identified by an Italian doctor named Alfonso Corti. Probably not related to the end of times at all. But this organ system that Alfonso Corti found is what is responsible for generating nerve impulses in response to sound waves. So it actually sends the sound signal to the brain. Prostaglandins are natural vasodilatory signaling molecules released when we need to dilate blood vessels. 
And if we block those, well, we'll block vasodilation and thus the absence of vasodilation is, well, I guess vasoconstriction. So we're basically choking out the nerve impulses from our ears to the brain by decreasing blood delivery. Some have also suggested there's an effect on calcium channels because you can't cause tinnitus with quinidine in rats that are on the calcium channel blocker nemotipine. And of course, it could be all of the above with multiple mechanisms leading to decreased hearing and tinnitus. In fact, a third mechanism proposes that beyond channel blockade and possible ischemia, that quinine might interfere with the mechanical ability of the ear to transmit sound waves. See, you have these cells in your ear called hair cells. You actually have two types, inner and outer. The inner hair cells are the cells that actually absorb the sound waves. As they ride those sound waves, their mechanical movement generates an action potential and sends nerve impulses to the brain to hear sound. Now, outer hair cells are different, but proposed to be quite vital to hearing. They do not function to send signals to the brain. They function to amplify the mechanical sound waves that reach the cochlea so that those sound waves can reach the inner hair cells. And they do this in two ways. One is through inherent mechanical resonance. Sounds a little funky, but think about it like this. If an earthquake is shaking your house and your dishes are shaking too, think of the dishes like your hair cells. They are adding additional vibrations by shaking with the sound waves of the earthquake. The other way they enhance sound waves is through something called electromotility, where they're able to change their length and shape and reproduce the sound wave using electrical conduction. Kind of like if I start singing a song and you hear the same tune and then start singing it through a megaphone, I guess. Hopefully that analogy will work for you. Either way, the mechanical properties of these outer hair cells are integral to their ability to generate force. Exposure to quinidine causes these hair cells to elongate and dilate, seeming to maybe induce a mechanical change or a structural change and greatly reducing the force they are capable of generating by increasing their compliance. It's thought that this interference with the ability to conduct sound waves to the inner hair cells leads to a chronic absence of the inner hair cells conducting nerve signals to the brain. And this is one of the proposed mechanisms of tinnitus, where the chronic absence of stimulation from your auditory inputs makes your auditory cortex understimulated. So it goes out seeking new neuronal pathways to other parts of the brain to get stimulated, leading to this unregulated buzzing sound, at least in some theories. I don't know how much more in-depth we can get without going into another episode, so let's stop there. The long and short is we don't actually know, we have some theories. But fortunately, it does appear to be reversible hearing loss and tinnitus. So after the exposure has gone away, they tend to regain full hearing capacity. Sadly, we can't say the same about the ocular toxicity. Is our YouTuber going to recover their vision or is it going to get worse? In a case series of 30 people admitted for quinine toxicity, about a fifth of them were at least partially sighted or fully blind on discharge. A quick Google search of quinine and blindness will find a tragic number of case reports of people trying to treat leg cramps and winding up with a case of sightlessness. And interestingly, the toxicity seems to be delayed. At least that's what most references and case reports cite citing somewhere between 6 and 24 hours from time of ingestion to onset of vision loss. There's no real great explanation for why there is this delay, but it is supported by data, such as this case series in 1985, where 48 patients were admitted for quinine ingestion, and the mean time to blindness onset was 9 hours. Nicely, in this case report, they also were able to correlate toxicity from specific levels. Quinine levels around 10 are what are associated with vision loss, and you see synchronism around quinine levels of 5, so it would make sense that other symptoms would be the first harbingers of toxicity. And what's worse is we don't really know why it happens. There are a ton of theories, and the predominant theory has changed over time. Now, originally, when these patients would show up, they would find things like arterial vasospasm and disc pallor, meaning the optic disc looks pale because no blood is going there. So it was thought that this was an entirely ischemic event, sort of like the mechanisms of ototoxicity. Because of this, numerous therapies directed at dilating your arteries and increasing oxygen delivery, like hyperbaric oxygen or 
vasodilating agents, or even something called left stellate ganglionic blockade, where they turn off the nerve that delivers vasoconstrictive neurotransmitters. These therapies were all widely variable in their efficacy. Nothing was coming through as a gold standard treatment. And later, reports of blindness occurring before any arterial vasospasm led others to believe that it was a direct retinal toxic effect that quinine had to lead to blindness. And of course, it's possible there are multiple modes of action that lead to this ocular toxicity. But regardless of how it occurs, once it happens, it's a bit of a dealer's choice for what happens next. Patients with large cumulative doses, such as chronic exposures or those with large single ingestions, might experience optic atrophy and full blindness, whereas others may have their vision recovered. The time course of vision recovery is a bit variable, with some reporting a few days and others months, but generally central vision recovers first, followed by peripheral vision. It does seem to be more often with higher doses or higher cumulative doses. For people taking things like chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine, the aminoquinolone derivatives, Retinal toxicity is more likely after a cumulative dose of around 1,000 grams, and there's a significant increase in the incidence of retinal toxicity after 5 to 7 years of therapy compared to less than 5 years. So it's likely that some kind of a dose-response relationship exists. Alright, well that explains some of the more specific toxicities related to synchronism and toxicities from aminoquinolones like hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine. But what about these strange, super nonspecific dizziness and flush? Well, quinoline derivatives can cause alpha blockade. I guess they could just cause everything. And as we know, alpha is responsible for constricting our vessels. So if we block that, we actually get vasodilation, and that can cause uh, low blood pressure and low flow events, which will cause us to become dizzy. There are also some anticholinergic properties associated with quinidine. And as we talked about earlier in the episode, anticholinergic, meaning blocking of muscarinic acetylcholine, prevents us from sweating. So the body dissipates heat by dilating our blood vessels so we can radiate heat closer to the surface of our skin. This causes a feeling of flushness alongside dizziness because we are dilating our blood vessels. And quickly, we should touch on the hypoglycemia. Turns out, if you give quinine to normal healthy people, it actually lowers their blood sugar a little bit. It acts like glucose and causes release of insulin from the pancreatic beta cells. It also enhances glucose's insulin releasing effect. We haven't really talked about these drugs, but it kind of acts like a sulfonylurea. By reducing potassium efflux from the cell, it makes the cell more positive, which allows it to depolarize easier, and at which point calcium can flood in and allow for the release of insulin. That's a whole other physiologic pathway. Point is, makes the cell more positive, releases insulin. It's a pretty commonly reported quinine effect, with up to 10% of patients on quinine for malaria reporting hypoglycemia. As for the hypokalemia, it's not really clear why this occurs, but it is more likely related to shifts of intracellular potassium, possibly due to prevention of potassium efflux from cells, or maybe it's from insulin secretion. In severe overdoses, there may be severe hypokalemia, requiring aggressive replacement. There's actually some debate over whether or not you should give replacement because you haven't lost potassium, you've just shifted it intracellular. But given the relatively low risk of replacement and the high risk of arrhythmia with electrolyte abnormalities in somebody overdosed on an antiarrhythmic, it seems like a reasonable idea to try to maintain a normal potassium. Now, the nausea and vomiting, I don't have a great explanation for you. Here's a hand wave. Quinine has direct irritant effects on the gastrointestinal tract and stimulates the brainstem center responsible for nausea and emesis. I don't know what makes a certain molecule stimulate the brain chemoreceptors for nausea. Now, maybe that's something we'll look into later. But think about it like this. If you have too many gin and tonics, you are going to feel sick. And this has the same effect. Not because of the gin, but because of the tonic. Wow, that was a lot. Don't worry if you get lost. I didn't think I was going to read that much about hair cells either. We'll do a quick summary of the clinical effects at the end. Now, let's take it back to our case. But we have our 21-year-old female. She's here now with dizziness, probably from alpha blockade, flushing from an anticholinergic toxidrome, leading to vasodilation to radiate extra heat. She has decreased visual acuity. We don't know why, possibly due to a direct retinal toxic effect of quinine or possibly due to vasoarterial constriction leading to ischemia of the retina. She has tinnitus, ringing of the ears, 
may be related to decreased prostaglandin production causing ischemia to the organ of corti or possibly related to quinine-induced outer hair cell mechanical changes, reducing them from sending sound waves to the inner hair cells. Her vitals and cardiac electrocardiogram were normal. There were no concerning signs of low blood pressure, which can occur from alpha-adrenergic blockade, or tachycardia, which can be a reflex from low blood pressure due to alpha-adrenergic blockade, or from a direct acetylcholine antagonism, also called anticholinergic effect, on the heart. Additionally, there were no concerning signs of potential arrhythmias, like widening of the QRS complex, which is from sodium channel blockade. This was all the information that the emergency department had when they contacted me, wanting to know what the toxicities of the substance are, how to treat them, how long the patient needed to be observed for, whether new toxicities would develop, and whether the current ones would worsen. So, what do we do? Well, first, I'm grateful that the ER actually knew what the patient ingested. Frequently, it's not so easy to get a good substance history on patients. Patients are often too altered to actually talk with us, or they're not always truthful about what they've taken. But at least that matter was solved in this case. Even though they displayed all the classical signs of synchronism, I might have thought about synchronism, but it's unlikely I would have put my finger on it just based off these symptoms. Just like many of the guessers in the beginning of the episode, there's a lot of things that might have caused similar symptoms. A lot of things like salicylates can cause tinnitus, things contaminated with methanol might cause bilateral blindness, or even a complex migraine occurring with the ingestion. But that problem is solved. We know what she took, and she's displaying classical signs and symptoms consistent with the exposure. Seeing as she has these signs of synchronism, I'd like to evaluate her to see if she's experiencing any of the more severe manifestations, such as cardiac arrhythmia or hypoglycemia. I asked the team to send electrolyte panels as well as get an ECG. A basic metabolic panel is sent. Her potassium is low, consistent with synchronism, though we're not entirely sure why this occurs. Her glucose is 55, and it's corrected with intravenous dextrose. This is likely due to excessive insulin secretion from raising the resting membrane potential of pancreatic beta cells due to sodium-potassium ATPase blockade on those cells by quinine. An EKG is checked, which demonstrates a QRS interval of 100, indicating that ventricular depolarization does not appear to be prolonged, and the QTC interval is 400, indicating that repolarization is not being significantly affected either. So this is all good. Mild symptoms, correctable electrolyte and endocrine abnormalities, no cardiac arrhythmia or severe vital sign manifestations. So what can we do to treat our young YouTuber? Well, if we return to our tox principles, decontamination, trying to remove the patient from the toxin. There's no powder on her to clean off. And at this point, we are more than six hours out from ingestion. So activated charcoal likely plays no role. However, it should be noted that quinine might actually be a good target for multi-dose activated charcoal, where we try to bind any additional drug that's getting reabsorbed from something called enterohepatic recirculation. Basically, after you eat the drug, you absorb it and excrete it back out into your gut, where you reabsorb it. So we can give you multiple doses of charcoal to try to bind that drug that gets excreted back out into the gut. And because higher quinine levels are associated with more severe toxicity, some have recommended you'd use this strategy to try to rapidly reduce your quinine level. But we didn't do that here. Also, that's more alongside our treatment principle of enhancing elimination. And it's a good thing we can do that, because it turns out it's really hard to get quinine or quinidine out of your blood. First, most of it is actually in your tissue because it has a large volume of distribution. So the little amount that is still in your blood is highly protein bound. So you can't dialyze it off because it's stuck to your protein so it won't go across a dialysis filter. Now, you can do some wacky things for protein bound toxins like, oh, all right, I know this is kind of where I lose some people, but this is really fascinating stuff. And you know what? It's for me. Somebody out there is going to appreciate this part of the discussion. So I'm going to leave it in. For protein-bound toxins, you can use something called protein-bound dialysate sometimes, where you add protein to your dialysis fluid, and it helps draw the drug off your blood protein onto the protein in the dialysis. Except you usually use albumin as that protein for systems like MARS or single-pass albumin dialysate, and quinine and quinidine are actually bound to alpha-acid glycoprotein, so I'm not sure it would work. This is just theoretical talking. 
Other options are highly protein-bound drugs. We kind of talked about them before. We can take all the protein out of your blood and give you new, new protein back. That's called plasma exchange. Or we can run your blood against a charcoal filter, in which case we have no control what it binds, and you lose all sorts of things like platelets, electrolytes, and protein-bound drugs. So none of these are very good options. Basically, we're out of luck. Brian, this is a lot of theoretical nerdy talk. You are going to start overheating. Good catch, Toxo. Let's turn it back. Next pillar, supportive cares. We need to support her airway, breathing, and circulation. Fortunately, in this case, she has normal vital signs, a normal electrocardiogram, and there's no concern that her mental status is going to decompensate so much that she won't be able to protect her airway. So there's not really much to support here. However, this is a good place to note that there might be a preferred vasopressor in massive overdose with hypotension, both for quinidine or quinine, and also, as you'll hear about on the mini-episode, for hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. And it's the same vasopressor, epinephrine. Epinephrine in humans has been shown to antagonize the antiarrhythmic effects of quinidine, meaning if you're really stable on quinidine and we can't induce VTAC and we give you epinephrine, suddenly we can which isn't normally good, but perhaps an overdose, it would be a good thing to antagonize the excessive quinidine effect. And remember that these are negative inotropes, so in theory they can depress cardiac output, and epinephrine has a strong beta-1 effect, which increases cardiac output to a much larger degree than some of its friends like norepi. That said, there's no comparative evidence to say that any other vasopressor combination that can maintain hemodynamics is any better or worse. So, do what you know to keep the patient alive. Anyways, it's not relevant to the patient in front of us. Their vitals are fine. We talked about decontaminating them, which it's a little too late. We could, I guess, give them multi-dose activated charcoal, but we didn't. There's no other enhanced elimination modalities, and we don't need to support their ABCs. Maybe I should check a quinine level. I mean, the case series did show that there's worse toxicity with higher levels. Maybe it can help me gauge how aggressive I need to be with my therapies. But seeing as she already has decreased visual acuity and I can assess her risk of arrhythmia with an EKG, I'm not sure I really need to do any sort of confirmatory analysis. And honestly, it wouldn't come back in time to influence care at all. All it would do is let someone write a case report about it. <laughs> On to our next pillar of tox treatment, which would be reversal of toxicity. Okay, so we know quinidine blocks sodium channels and that could cause a long QRS. Well, she doesn't have that, so we don't have to worry about it. If she did, we would give hypertonic sodium to overwhelm the sodium channel blockade. Now for a brief interruption for a clinical learning moment. If you're a healthcare provider and you're listening to this, you probably know that many people use sodium bicarbonate to try to antagonize sodium channel blockade. But remember, if you're dealing with an overdose where hypokalemia is an issue, you run the risk of worsening hypokalemia by alkalinizing the blood, causing the cells to shift hydrogen extracellularly to maintain the pH and shift potassium intracellularly to maintain positive charge balance. Thus, if dealing with an overdose where hypokalemia might be a significant issue and you have a wide QRS, consider using boluses of hypertonic saline instead of sodium bicarbonate and consult with your local poison center on how to most appropriately administer these drugs. Okay, back to the show. Her potassium appeared low in her serum. Maybe it was just an intracellular shift, but we did replete it, because why risk going into an arrhythmia in any overdose? The tinnitus, well, I know that will resolve on its own. So most of our problems are taken care of, but we do still have this, well, decreased vision. So what should we do? Can we reverse this toxicity when we don't really even know what causes the toxicity? Should we send her for hyperbaric oxygen? Should we ask someone to do a left stellate ganglionic blockade, which can have severe outcomes? The patient had loss of light perception in both eyes, and after a few hours of observation, it progressed to dilated non-reactive pupils. Despite the fact that the evidence for using therapies that enhance oxygen delivery is pretty controversial, we had a risk-benefit discussion with the patient. And there's relatively low risk to hyperbaric oxygen in a normal healthy person, so she opted to undergo a session. We had a hyperbaricist set the parameters. She underwent a 90-minute dive, and, well, within 24 hours, her vision actually improved. So, did it work? Was this the hyperbaric oxygen, or was this just the natural course of disease and she happened to be sitting in an oxygen chamber for 90 minutes of it? That, I'm not sure we'll ever know. Her recovery followed the normal course that's typically reported, where you get return of central vision 
and it still took a few weeks for her peripheral vision to recover. She was admitted overnight, and nothing bad really happened, and she was able to follow up with ophthalmology. We didn't notice any severe long-term outcomes. So, hooray! Toxicology saves the day, or maybe we just kind of watched a patient. Not super clear. <laughs> wow, I was hoping for a bit more of a climactic ending, Ryan. What are you talking about? We had a patient who ate an old and esoteric toxin and, and came in presenting the characteristic findings of that toxicity. It was a, it was a wild ride. And what, they got better. We don't know if necessarily our treatment helped, but we definitely tried. Honestly, a lot of times in toxicology, you don't even know what you're treating. So this is more climactic than, than most. <laughs> Either way, I guess that wraps it up. I hope everyone learned something interesting about this culmination of symptoms that occurs from chewing on an old medicine. And perhaps you'll be more equipped to deal with it should it ever cross your path. Now, if you're craving more, or you're more interested in how we would manage the severe toxicities of, say, hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine overdose, something that in the year 2020 you are unfortunately much more likely to encounter, head over to thepoisonlab.com, and we're going to take a deeper dive into how to manage an actual overdose in one of those cases. Everything from the treatments, the doses, the evidence behind the therapies, and clinical considerations for our treatments. But for everyone else... Let's wrap up what we learned today. Malaria has been killing people for thousands of years, and we have been chewing cinchona bark to treat malaria for hundreds of years and experiencing the clinical syndrome of synchonism, which is caused by the quinine and quinidine found in cinchona bark. You might encounter synchonism in patients making their own tonic water with cinchona powder, patients taking quinidine as an antiarrhythmic, or patients taking quinine for refractory malaria. Quinine and quinidine impart numerous toxicities, including alpha-adrenergic blockade, negative inotropic effects, anticholinergic toxicity, sodium channel blockade, potassium channel blockade, and effects on pancreatic beta cells. Finally, through numerous proposed mechanisms as we discussed earlier, they may interfere with the normal functioning of both your eyes and ears. Toxicity manifests with some nonspecific symptoms like nausea, headaches, dizziness, and flushness. Patients may also present with tinnitus, which is usually reversible and possible delayed ocular toxicity, ranging from decreased visual acuity all the way to full blindness. Finally, patients who are able to receive laboratory evaluation might demonstrate hypoglycemia and hypokalemia, as well as EKG abnormalities like a prolonged QRS and a prolonged QTC interval. Evaluation of a patient generally would include an EKG as well as a basic metabolic panel to look for electrolyte abnormalities like hypokalemia and low blood sugar. Vision testing could also be performed to assess for any ocular toxicity. Treatment includes standard therapies like administration of activated charcoal if it was a recent ingestion, and possibly considered multi-dose activated charcoal uh, to enhance elimination. Other therapies are directed at reversing toxicity. Administering hypertonic sodium to reverse sodium channel blockade, optimizing electrolytes to reduce risk of arrhythmia, and correcting endocrine abnormalities. Due to lack of consensus over the true mechanism of ocular toxicity, it's not clear what is the most appropriate therapy. A variety of therapies have been suggested with variable outcomes. Many of them are directed at increasing oxygen delivery to the eye, such as hyperbaric oxygen or using vasodilating agents. If vision loss is present, recovery of vision occurs first centrally, followed by peripheral vision in the coming days to months. In severe cases of overdose with altered mental status, seizures, or hypotension, support of airway breathing and circulation may be needed. Some have suggested epinephrine may be a first-line vasopressor due to its effect on increasing cardiac output and on antagonizing quinidine's antiarrhythmic effect. If you're confronted with an overdose of one of the quinoline derivatives, chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine, check out the mini-episode to learn more about optimal management of those cases. Whew! That was a mouthful. I think that'll wrap it up for today's episode. All right. Well, if you like what you've been hearing, don't forget to subscribe on wherever you listen to podcasts. Check us out on Twitter at Lab Poison and myself at EM Poison Farm D. We also have an Instagram at Talks underscore Talk and a Facebook page, The Poison Lab. You can get updates about the show on any of those social media platforms. Now, here is where we would normally play the intro to our next episode. But when we released our Toxicologist vs. the Internet episode, you spoke loudly. 
it seemed that people really enjoyed that format, so we're going to do a few more of those alongside our regular episodes. Our next episode, episode 7, we welcome on Dr. Jillian Theobald, MD, PhD, emergency medicine physician, medical toxicologist, and associate medical director of a poison center. We have an excellent time trying to tackle some of the perplexing toxicology questions on the internet, as well as breaking down some severe cases of fatal poisoning and walking through our differentials and treatments. Then for episode 8, we'll be jumping back to our traditional format, going in-depth on a poison's history, science, and medical management. So please tune in for episode 7 if you want to hear some great discussion around a lot of topics in toxicology uh, from an absolutely brilliant toxicologist. And now we'll play the intro to episode 8. You've heard this one before. It's the same one that played at the end of episode 4, The Rise of Lethal Loperamide. If you think you know what's going on, or even if you don't, I'd love to hear from you. Send your guests in to TalksTalk1 at gmail.com. Okay, Talkso, roll the intro. A married couple in their 40s presents to the emergency department. Each patient is displaying signs of an inferior wall myocardial infarction, or heart attack, with ST segment elevations in the inferior leads of their EKG. They each have hypotension with systolic blood pressures in the 70s and bradycardia with heart rates in the 30s to 40s. The bradycardia and hypotension immediately resolves after atropine. They're taken to the cath lab to treat their suspected heart attack, but no heart attack can be found. No coronary arteries are blocked. The couple revealed that they had recently purchased a natural sweet-tasting food that was touted as a sexual performance enhancer. The couple had been ingesting one teaspoon of the substance each day for the last week, but before presenting to the emergency department, they increased their dose to a full tablespoon, which led to them both showing false signs of a heart attack and severe life-threatening hypotension and bradycardia. Okay, looking forward to hearing from you. Hope you can tune in. Hey, Toxa, can you play us out? The information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. Please contact your doctor for any health questions or call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222 for poison-related questions. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent those of our employers. This show is poorly written and shoddily produced by Ryan Feldman. Subscribe for future episodes and don't forget to share with your nerdy friends. See you next time. Goodbye.